You are now listening to the Purpose Edits Podcast. You've got to be willing to be vulnerable. You have to have the ability to self-assess, and not everybody has the ability to self-assess. You don't necessarily have to like sweet to be successful in school. You just have to know how to play the game that's messy and get through it. Welcome to the Perfect Status Podcast. This is a short yet powerful conversation designed to help you do three things that can ultimately change the trajectory of your life. One, discover your purpose. Two, walk in your purpose. And three, ultimately fulfill your purpose. I am your host, Coach Vic, and I'm joined as always by my lifelong friend, my brother, the educator, Dr. Shane Calhoun. Welcome everybody to another episode, and this one is a very special episode. We have one of our dear friends, our sister, the trio, well, the third wheel to our trio, I should say. Uh, She doesn't like when I say that. She's rolling her eyes as we speak, but nonetheless, you've heard her say her name, Miss Nelsia, our dear sister. Welcome to the show. Welcome to Purpose Addicts. Hello. Thank you for having me. How you guys doing? We are so good. Doing good. Doing night. He's always like that in the beginning, Elsie. Don't worry. He warms up. He has to warm up a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, but it's you. It shouldn't be that hard. No, it, it has nothing think, to do with her. It's Sometimes it's like yeah, the groove of the conversation. It's just the groove of the conversation, especially like depending on how the day goes. Like today has sucked, you know. Um, but then once, once the groove of the conversation goes, um, you go. Yeah, then you just kind of loosen up a bit. Mm-hmm. I know it's not me. That's fam. Yeah. That's exactly right. It's never you. It's never your fault. At least that's what you tell us. Moving on. So, Nelsia is not just a guest that we're going to interview today. Nelsia is a co-host, in our opinion. Um, everywhere we go, she goes. And so, you guys are in for a great conversation. Um, today's topic is going to be on women in law enforcement. Um Nelsia has worked in law enforcement. How long now, Nelsia? Um, it has been 16 years. On the 25th, it'll be my 16-year anniversary with the sheriff's office. Man, that's awesome. 16 yeah. years. 16 years. You got kids that age. Exactly. Right, right? <laughs> so we're going to jump into that topic. But like any episode, we always like to kick it off with a what blew your mind. And here's how you know it's so special. Shane got more than one. What blew your mind? So Shane, Dr. Calhoun, please hit us. Tell right, us. So I had to narrow it down today. Mind. All right. So the first one's going to be real quick. Um, what do you call a brown chicken and a brown cow? Brown chicka, wow, wow. Brown chicka, brown cow. But yeah, that, that was on my mind. I had to go like hard and hard. All right. So <laughs> You're fired. Only, only I would get it, of course. <laughs> All right, so the real one is... um, It's so sad. He has a doctorate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the real one is a combination of... um, It's a combination of a couple conversations. Um, The first one is like when a milk spill, let's say you're in a living room, got new carpet, a cup of milk spilled, what happened? What do you do? What's your first reaction? To yell at whoever spilled it? To kind of get angry and then uh, figure out how we clean it up. Okay. When, like, in real life, we should be like when things don't go our way or things don't pan out the way we're supposed to. Of course, you have to clean it up, but the next step is to figure out how to not make it happen again. 
And a lot of the time people just get so focused on the, ah, you spilled the milk, but that milk has spilled. That milk has spilled. Like I was telling y'all on Saturday that I took an L this weekend on um, this project I was working on. But like the beauty of it is like now I have the opportunity to learn and I can go back and I can look at all the mistakes and I can meticulously go back through and figure it out so it doesn't happen again. So I think too many times people focus on the fact that the milk has spilt as opposed to, all right, let's clean it up. Let's try not to make it happen again. It'd be insanity for it, the same milk to spill twice in the same area or whatever. So that was what kind of blew my mind or the thought that was kind of on my mind today. Yeah, and I mean, it makes sense when you think about why people are angry at why the milk spilt, right? Whether it be on the carpet or what mm-hmm. have you, they're angry at the fact that they now got to do extra work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and I think some, sometimes people forget that there's a lesson in it. Always, think, always. You know, that's exactly. Always, so look for the lesson. Exactly. Yeah, I don't know if y'all remember my dad, you know, he used to always yell out the milk already on the floor, right? And in that, I didn't realize that as a kid, the lesson in that was focus on fixing the problem. Don't focus on the fact that it spilled, right? Focus on fixing it. And I think to your point, it's about focusing on how to prevent this from from happening in the future. Mm -hmm. 100%. Absolutely. I like that. It's so funny how this stuff just uh, connects and relates. But let's let's jump into today's topic, especially talking with our our good friend, women in law enforcement. So, um, I really would love for you to kind of give your background, your story as to how you got into law enforcement, um, because I think that will help jumpstart the conversation. So, give us that rundown. So, um, sixteen years ago, I was a new mom. Uh, three month old and I needed stability. I was working at like a retail store, needed stability and the sheriff's office was advertising on TV and I applied and I remember in my interview, they asked me why I wanted to be in law enforcement and I told them it's not that I wanted to. I never grew up in an environment that was, uh, law enforcement was not an ally to us. I grew up in the hood, East New York, Brooklyn um, and we were essentially taught after police. Um, and and, and being trained that way, I never saw myself as a law enforcement professional. Um, So my job was out of necessity, and I was just fortunate enough that when I became a correctional officer, I fell in love with it. And uh, 16 years later, here I am, still with the same agency, still loving what I do, and still learning and growing. How has that uh, F the police mindset or mentality changed over the years? as you have, you know, as you've worked, has that changed any, or, or what are your, what are your insights on that mindset now? Because a lot of people, especially in our current environment, have that mindset. Still. So what, how, how do you view that now? So it's, it's changed a lot in that I respect the profession because I respect that just like any other profession anywhere in the world, there are good people that do it and there are bad people that do it. And the fact that they, that they took that oath and put on that badge, that doesn't make them a good person. Some people do it for the wrong reasons. So the profession as a whole, I respect. I just try to be cognizant of the people that I'm dealing with and the people that I work with and, um, and take them for who they are. I believe that when people show you who they are, you believe them. And when they show me that they're wolf in sheep's clothing, I believe them. And I take Mm -hmm. that, you know, I take that to heart. Um, As it pertains to our current environment, it's kind of 
it gets tough at times because I'm a black woman raising black kids. So when I see all these trespasses, trespasses against the black community by law enforcement, um, my law enforcement counterparts want me to um, choose that side. You hear the, the stupid stuff like blue lives matter. I'm sorry, I wasn't born blue. I was born black. I'm a die black. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And the blue life is a choice. That's a career choice. That's not going to go with me to my grave. So it's just, it, it, it's a, a line that has to be drawn and it has to be respected. I can respect law enforcement without compromising the pride I take in my blackness. Mm-hmm. But now, so part of the reason why we bring different people on the show to talk about how they got into their profession is ultimately to help possibly somebody out there discovered this same career path for themselves, right? Now, when you say you fell in love with it once you got into it, how long did it take you to get to that point? So um, I would say that over the years, I've loved my my career for different reasons. When I first started, I loved it because it gave me the stability I was looking for. It gave me the income I was looking for. It allowed me to take care of my son and I didn't have to worry about anything because if we're being honest, people are always gonna commit crimes. So the security that I needed was there. And that when I was a young 20 something year old, just trying to feed my son, that was perfect for me. And then security was in the fact that people were going to go out and commit crimes. That was always going to happen. If I'm being honest, (laughs) that makes sense. (laughs) I mean, you know, as as long as I didn't do anything stupid to compromise my job, I was always going to have a job. Yeah. Yeah. You're essential. Exactly. I'm essential. Um, and then as I got older and I became more involved and I got into supervision, um, well, well, first training and then supervision, I realized that I was helping grow people um, on the inmate level, you know, where, where I'm helping them with these programs and to, uh, reentry programs to, to help them reenter into their communities. And then as it pertains to younger deputies, mentoring and guiding. And I realized that I really, really do love helping people and growing people i'm a nurturer and Mm -hmm. as i realized that and i and i put myself in a position in the sheriff's office where i have the ability to reach more people i just enjoy my career more they call that recidivism correct okay that's basically most people that get out and I, i there's a percentage there but i don't know it but when they get out they're more liable to go back correct so yeah to offend and go back so we, as opposed to harping, I think it's a, it's a verbiage thing. Um, our focus is on reentry as opposed to limiting recidivism. Mm-hmm. I, I, and, and it's just a, it's a culture thing. We focus on, for the purpose of verbiage, reentry and back into society. So we have, mm-hmm. um, with, exactly, within the correctional facility, we have a plethora of programs directed at we have parenting classes and we have classes to fix credit and we have opioid programs mm-hmm. um we have a dog training program in which inmates can um gain a certificate as a as a dog trainer to help mm-hmm. them get the job they get out i actually adopted one of the dogs i have one um wow. so we our focus is re-entry so how Even does it ties into recidivism how does that program work like that i mean that sounds good and i've actually never heard anybody explain these programs that clearly like i didn't know that was something so what does that look like and how um effective is it so we have 
Okay, so for both our male and our female population, we have what is called our ACTS program, Accepting tra Change Through Treatment, and they're opioid programs. Mm -hmm. And they follow this 12-step basis, and the inmates are housed in a dedicated housing facility in which they have pretty much all of the waking hours, they have some kind of program going on or class to include like yoga classes and um, meetings and stuff like that. And then for our female inmates, we have the dog program. And two at a time, we, we, we get dogs from the animal shelter, the county animal shelter, and they come and they stay in the facility. And along with a volunteer dog trainer, the inmates learn how to train the dogs. The dogs go through this training program. Mm -hmm. They graduate from this program. And at the end of it, the inmates, excuse me, get a certification as a dog trainer. And then once the dogs complete the program, the dogs are put up for adoption. So a lot, of, a lot of people who get arrested, have offenses, come out and they apply for jobs and those jobs have background checks. And a lot of jobs, if you put on there, you've been convicted, you've been charged, what have you, they're getting turned down. So the, I, I think the question that I have is the success rate of inmates who re-enter, who complete the re-entry program successfully, what's the success rate of them actually then getting a job being out? So statistics, I couldn't tell you. I don't okay. know. But I do know that the likelihood improves greatly if you have some type of certification to go along with it. So if you can, if you can get out of jail, and, and also keeping in mind that everyone who serves a jail sentence is not a convicted felon. Sometimes it can be, sometimes it, it could have been a felony that was expunged, or it could be a misdemeanor that they had to do time for, whatever the case may be. Um, or you have people who were arrested for felony drug charges, but they go through um, drug court, a drug court program, and it takes the felony off their record. So let's say they get out of jail, and let's talk, we're talking about the dog certifications. They go to PetSmart, and they have to put on their application that they were arrested for a felony, um, you know, that, that is part of their criminal history. If they search it, they're going to find that arrest, but they mm -hmm. can also say, well, I got the felony taken off of my, off of my record, and I gave, I'm a certified dog trainer. Yeah, because you can you show know, proof of what right. happened. Although you may have been arrested, that's not the that's not the the end of your story. That's not the conclusion, right? It's not all the facts. Exactly. And even let's say even if they are a convicted felon, um, I feel like and and I don't know, I'm not on that end of it, but I feel like a lot more employers are open to giving somebody another chance. I think it depends on what you were charged and or convicted with versus the job you are applying for. Uh, if you were a convicted felon for money laundering and you're applying to be a financial advisor, I don't think <laughs> they're going to allow you to come on board with that on your record. I just, uh, just that, that might might be a little bit accurate. <laughs> I, I think what I think what matters most is, and it's not just for people who are coming out of prison and or jail, it's for anybody, is first having a mentality that anything is possible, that you can. A lot of times we we talk about fear on the show a lot and how to manage it. But I think a lot of times we have this mentality of defeat before we even try. And we end up hindering our chances and our ability to actually excel and achieve, to rewrite our own stories. Um, and I, I don't know, I don't know if you spoke on this and I might have missed it, but these programs sound like they're more on the hard skills side of things, giving people some, some tangible skills to work with. Are there some 
mental development programs as well that, that accompany these programs? So we, we, additionally, we do have soft skill class. We have stuff like anger management that is voluntary or sometimes it's court ordered. Um, like I said, parenting skills, to me, that's not a hard skill because, you know, no one can, it's not a, there's no instruction manual that comes with being a parent. Yeah. Um, so stuff, we do offer some, I would say that most of them um, are more hard skills, but they do offer some just to help uh, people learn how to process and how to, how to react and how to manage their reactions and stuff like that. Absolutely. Conflict resolution, um, time management, I think are, are crucial when you talk about entering the workforce. Um, just soft skills that people need to interact with one another, period, whether you're talking about on the job or off the job, period. Correct. All right. So let's talk about your career path, um, because to work 16 years, what, what's your title right now? I'm a lieutenant. You're a lieutenant. So talk to us about the career path. And what I really am curious about is the challenges you experienced along the way. So um, I started as, our agency calls them detention deputies, but um, they're known as correctional officers. Um, And I was a correctional officer working in both male and female housing units and in our intake department for maybe 10 years, 10 or 11 years. And then, no, I'm sorry, nine years. And in that time I became a trainer Um, and then after training for a few years, I got promoted to sergeant, was a sergeant for five years, and then I got promoted to lieutenant. And as a lieutenant, I am responsible for um, pretty much the whole facility while I'm on duty. I'm, I'm, I'm also known as the watch commander. And pretty much everyone who's there, I'm responsible for. Um, so when it comes to challenges, I think that as a woman in law enforcement, naturally there are some challenges because women in law enforcement were so outnumbered and were very underestimated. Um, it's just in a matter. Way? Underestimated um, in what way? We're not we're not seen as strong enough, whether um, mentally, emotionally, or physically. Um, not as strong as our male counterparts. We're not authoritative enough. Um, when we are authoritative, it's it's not. We we have this thing that law enforcement harps on called command presence and it's and it's you have to have a strong command presence when someone walks into the room they have to see your confidence and they know that you can take command of the situation that is drilled in you from the start and women aren't seen to have the same command presence that a man does not presumably correct and um for me it was a matter of showing my command presence and being assertive and showing that I was just as strong as my male counterparts without being seen as angry or um, having a bad attitude, you know, or not a team player. And it was a matter of balancing that. And that's a, that can be a hard thing to do. Um, And then. by By the way, a lot of people don't know you, all of those things, as you said, you know, women don't have, you absolutely have, I've seen you body slam like two dudes, uh, why you One gotta time. go there? Why, why you gotta go there? I'm, I just want to stress to the people. Who, <laughs> but you make who me sound talking. angry, bro. <laughs> no, 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 no. It was definitely warranted. It was definitely warranted. They approached <laughs> you first out of line, and you had to assert yourself. It exactly. makes total sense why you're in the field that you're in. You definitely found your purpose. 
I, I, I feel like I did. <laughs> and, it was, and it was by accident. I think that's really funny that sometimes we find it without even looking for it because 16 years ago, if you asked me what I wanted to do, I would have never told you I wanted to be a correction officer. I would have never told you that I wanted to be anybody's mentor, anybody's teacher. I didn't, you know, that was the farthest thing from my mind. And it was something that I had to grow into. Um, and I think that's okay. That's how and most things happen, though. Yeah. yeah you know, what she's talking just, about. Yeah, you, 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 you bump into it on accident. Like, you know, um, you know and, and it's a good thing. I just, you appreciate the journey. You, yeah. You appreciate the journey. So, um... <laughs> What's the culture like being a woman, a black woman, in a in a police force? At first, um, any sign of being confident or mm. assertive mm. or standing up for yourself mm. is seen as angry. Mm. Oh, she has an attitude problem. Um, so when I was trying, I had to I had to try for sergeant three times, and um, it got to the point where, and it, it was my attitude. My attitude was a problem. First time, number one on the test, don't get promoted. Second time, same thing. After a while, it's like, yo, what am I doing? Why aren't I get, get why aren't I getting promoted? And somebody finally told me it's your attitude. You're always telling somebody off. And it was because people would violate and I would say what I had to say. And I had to learn that because I'm a black woman, it's not take, it's not received the same way it will be received from a white woman, a Latin woman, or anybody else. Definitely, definitely not the same way as it would be received coming from a white man. Um, so I had to learn how to get my point across without the stigma of being an angry black woman. So, um, so what's your advice with that? Because I have a, I have a daughter and, you know, trying to help her. Now, my wife, obviously helps her with this because my wife has spoke, spoken about this, but trying to help my daughter who's entering the workforce, entering the world, be assertive and not be afraid to be assertive because she's worried about how people are going to perceive her, right? I, I say that it's their problem if, if you know, they don't perceive you the right way. What's your advice to someone like that? Well, she's not naturally assertive. My daughter is opposite of me. So it's, you just you just kind of just said exactly what I'm going to say. Um, it's not it's not your it's not your problem how they perceive you. So here's what I tell people: um, I could care less what somebody thinks of me because I don't have time to worry about people's opinions. I honestly mm -hmm. don't. That and I make too much money for it. But <laughs> I just it's not it's not on my agenda to worry about what people think about me. But what I do care about is what I give them to work with. That's what I'm responsible for. So I'm responsible for making sure that I came correct. So I can be assertive without being rude. I can, I can get my point across without being abrasive mm -hmm. and, and without being standoffish and controversial, controversial. It's possible to do all of those things without bringing a negative energy to the situation. And once I had to, one of the hardest things for me in that, in that process and in discovering that was being honest with myself. Admitting to myself that I was being a jerk, that I was rude, I was abrasive, I was coming across as angry, even if I wasn't, and mm -hmm. I had to check myself, and then modify how I presented things. And when I did that, I was able to get my point, point across and be assertive without being so abrasive. All right, so one of the things that I was curious about is moving up in your profession is optional right? People don't have to move up. 
Correct. Meaning you don't have to be a manager. You don't have to be a lieutenant, a supervisor, what have you. It's strictly a choice. So what was it about the career path that you chose that made you want to pursue it? So for me, there were things that I knew that I didn't want. A lot of correctional officers, they opt for one of two, well, one of three things. Either they want to be a correctional officer, do they have 25 years, you know, leave me, leave me alone, let me work on the housing units, or they want to go to the road because with the sheriff's office being that um, uh, road units and corrections are all under the sheriff, it's a very easy transition to make. You go to school for a couple of months and it's a very easy transition to make. Okay. Um, or you go into supervision. For me, I, there were things that I wanted, there was change that I wanted to be able to influence that I couldn't do as a deputy, um, especially a deputy who was, who was deemed to have an attitude problem. Um, so I said, well, let me try to become a supervisor. And then, well, I initially started by training and I said, you know, I can uh, influence the new deputies to, to work a certain type of way. And that's what being a trainer allows you to do. So I did that for a while. And I said, well, let me go on and be a sergeant. And then after I became a sergeant, after a few years, it was like, I can do so much more at the next level. Because at the next level, as a lieutenant, in the correctional facility, there's only two levels above me. And those two levels aren't nearly as hands-on. The, 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 they pretty much, once they trust you as, you as a lieutenant, they let you run the show. Mm-hmm. Um, so I remember when I got interviewed for a lieutenant um, and the sheriff asked me, he said, um, he said, you know, I've been asking your peers about you and, and, you know, trying to, you know, just learn about you, you know, since I don't get to see you all the time. He said, one of the things that people always tell, tells me is that you're always so positive. You always go out of your way to help somebody, you know, no matter what the situation is. He said, I want to know how you do that. How do you maintain that? And I said, sir, with all due respect, and my boss looked at me. I said, with all due respect, nothing against you. I said, but you don't pay me enough to be miserable. I said, so every day I go in there knowing that I'm going to have a good day. And if I can, I'm going to influence somebody else to have a good day. And, um, and, my, and, and that's what I wanted. And, and he gave me a chance because <laughs> when he did my promotion, he told the crowd, he said, she told me she was going to do it anyway. So, and, and that was my thing. I want to be able to affect positive change in the correctional facility. Mm. So that, that's that's what pushed me. Mm. I mean, yeah. there was so there was so much that you just said in that. Like, yeah, I was muted, and the first thing that jumped up to me when you told partner that they don't pay you enough is like, you make that choice. Then I'm gonna go in here and I'm gonna be happy. Like yeah, I'm gonna be. I, I was telling. I was. I met with a group of students today, and I told them that exact same thing. That all of this life that we live is a choice. Yep. And regardless of the circumstances, you can make the decision how you react and how you live your life, yeah. essentially. Exactly. And what yeah. we do with the hand that we're dealt. Mm, that absolutely. Does that mean that every day is peaches and cream and every day is easy? No. But at some point you say, okay, let me move forward. Let me move past this. What is the takeaway? Mm. You know, and the takeaway might be might 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 hurt and it might be hard to deal with. But mm -hmm. okay, we take it, we process it and we move forward. We grow past it. Yep. But I'm not I'm not sacrificing sacrificing my happiness for anything or anybody. Absolutely. Never give somebody permission to ruin your day. And exactly. that's what we do when we when we allow people to upset us like that. The other Correct. piece that that you said that was so profound and I think people have to understand regarding uh un uncovering what their purpose is is what you sought out was not for selfish gain but it was to have an impact 
on others. And that's, that's the piece that I think a lot of people miss as they're trying to figure out what their passion is and what their purpose is in life is, is there a piece that's connected to benefiting others and serving others? And a lot of times people in what they pursue lacks that that's the piece that's missing. And therefore it doesn't end up working out Correct. Not for very long anyway. Yeah. You ha- you have to be in it for the right reasons. And for me, um, now don't get me wrong. Um, my promotion came with a nice piece of change. Um, Ooh, whoa. but that was not my motivation. Mm. Let, let me hold because it. Time, I asked you for money the other day and you said you ain't have it. I offered you $2. (laughs) I asked for five. (laughs) No, but like, okay, so to to be clear, um, I say my promotion came with a a nice piece of change, but at the time I did not know that. We actually got our baseline increased um, that year. I didn't know that at the time. So when I put in for lieutenant, I I wasn't going to be making a significant amount more than what I was making at the time. I did it because I wanted to be in a position to do more mm. for, for staff and for the inmates. I wanted to do more. Mm. Um, it was during the process that we got this raise and I was like, Oh snap. Thank yeah. You, sir. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I didn't sign up thinking that I was going to get the money that I got. So it really was not my motivation. It was just a bonus. And that's, that's the key. That's the key. If you go with what you love and you go with it intent with the intentions to help somebody, the bread is going to follow in Correct. whatever it is. Um, yeah, that's dope. Your gift will make room for you. Your gift will make room for the bread or whatever. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. dope. What was what was a defining moment in your career for you? Oh, this is so crazy. So it was in my first year. And I was a, I was a trainee and, um, you know, the group of trainees would all talk and we would hear about the trainers and this trainer's nice and this trainer's mean. And there was this one trainer that nobody wanted her cause she was so mean. And I'm walking through her housing unit one day and an inmate says something inappropriate through the window. So I knock on her door. I said, can you open this door? She opens the door and I tell the new, the inmate a new one. I tell them off for being disrespectful and I leave. Don't think nothing of it. Don't tell her nothing. I just leave. This is me back when, before I learned how to be more uh, politically correct. Civil. Yes. Five minutes later, I get called to the lieutenant's office. So I'm like, oh, crap. So he calls me in and he says, uh, this definitely told me you, uh, you stopped by her housing unit. I said, yes, sir. And he said, and I heard you had some words with an inmate. I said, yes, sir. And he said, you want to tell me what it was about? And I told him. He said, okay, so in my mind, man, I might as well pack it up. I'm probationary. I done got inappropriate. I'm losing my job. And he looks me in my eye and he says to me, um, I can tell you now that as long as you stay true to who you are at you at your core, you will always be successful and you will go very far in this business. Mm. He said, a lot's going to happen in the next few years, but do not compromise who you are at your core. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I call, it, it's so funny you asked that because I just called him about two weeks ago and I thanked him for that moment. He's, he's a captain now, but I thanked him for that moment because that is one thing that I have always held near and dear to my heart. Stay Nilsia. Don't let anybody compromise who Nilsia is. Mm-hmm. As long as I can do that, I can make it through hell and high water. Yeah. Yeah. And that's who and you've that, always been. 
And that is the biggest, that is the most profound moment that I can think of. And that was in my first, that was within my first year, maybe my first six months of being there. Wow. Wow, that's dope. That's real dope. So kind of along the thread of seeking advice, we like to ask a lot of our, our guests who come on with us, give us three people you listen to in terms of advice and why you listen to those three people. Like, well-known people or just people that I choose to listen to? People that you choose to listen to, who you seek advice from. Um, one is my mama, because she has this amazing and kind of just astounding sense of discernment. Um, mm. and, and it just leaves me in awe as I think back over, over my childhood and over my life. I remember one day I was going to, I was going to my friend's house and she said, Mm, I don't think you should go. And I thought she just had a problem with my friend. And she was like, no, I just got a bad feeling about it. And on the way to my friend's house, I got T-boned. I got in a car accident. Mm. Somebody T-boned me. And I was like, dang it. That woman told me to stay my butt at home. Mm. Um, so one is my mom. Um, one is the, the lieutenant I was just telling you about. His name is uh, Captain Ronald James Shaw Jr. with the Seminole County Sheriff's Office. Um, and the reason I listened to him is because... Um, when I see how he has maneuvered his career within the sheriff's office, there's so much of him that I've chosen to emulate in my leadership style. Mm. Um, because if nothing else, people respect him as a person. Everybody's going to respect the title. They sign up for that when they sign that piece of paper. You're going to respect rank. But I want people to respect me as a person. Mm. Because yes. if you respect me as a person, you're going to work that much better for me. Um, so I, I, I take his advice very, very, very um, intently. And then I listen to God. I believe he speaks to me. Um, and I believe that when, when I ask him, he, he gives me the lessons that I need, even if I don't always like them. Um, but I listen to his voice and I listen for it because I know it's there. How does one become a correctional officer? What credentials do they need or experiences do they need? So every state differs as far as um, age and, and education requirements. Mm -hmm. So. In the state of Florida, you have to be at least 19 years old and you have to go through the corrections, um, FDLE Correctional Academy, which is a, I don't even think, it's like 460 hours. Mm. Um, and it's offered at most of the, what used to be um, community colleges, now state mm -hmm. colleges, most of them offer some kind of, uh, they, they all have a law enforcement um, sector that offer the Correctional Academy. Yeah. Um, once you finish the academy, you have to pay, pass your state exam. And then you have to, once you hire on at an agency, there are certain annual or four-year qualifications that you have to maintain, such as firearms, such as uh, defensive tactics, first aid, stuff like that. Mm. Okay. We, we talked about recidivism and not having them repeat offending, but Ultimately, we don't want them to go and get involved in the system, period. So what, what it, from your perspective, some things that we can do to stop people or to give people a different perspective of what it's like on the inside to keep them out of jail and from getting into trouble? Um, as cliche as it may sound, I believe it starts at home. At the crib. Um, it, it really does. I think that us, if we're talking about the black community, community specifically, we have to do better at, at how we're rearing these children. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not talking about raising them 
to fear or behave a certain way towards law enforcement. That's a given because it's necessary for its survival in, in this current environment. But I'm just talking about raising them to be um, a man or woman of high caliber. Mm-hmm. And how they deal with, and how they, and how they carry themselves, and, and how they deal with their peers, and how they deal with, with anybody. And I think that um, that is not em- emphasized in the black community. No. Um, uh, uh, there's certain things that that growing up in the hood, I did not get that I know my white counterparts got. Just speak you know, on just it. Speak on it. Let's go. <laughs> just from learning about their culture. And it's yeah. simple stuff like learning about money. Yeah. You know what I mean, I had to get evicted from an apartment. I had to get a, get a car repossessed before I learned the value of a dollar and how to manage that dollar. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that was never taught to me. Um, being taught how to show affection to my kids and that it was okay for my sons to, to be emotional. That's yep, not yeah. something that, that I saw growing up. Um, and I don't think that even now most black families aren't teaching their children these things. And I think that it really starts at home with us teaching our kids about this stuff and raising them um, to live in, in today's environment. Yeah, but we're what not, happened? We're not preparing them. We're not, we are not preparing our kids. All right. I think the only other job that's more, that's more thankful, thankless than being a teacher is police officers. All right. And as I said, I've, I grew up with this very, very same mindset. If the police, the police ain't from us. But I also can see it from the other side that we are not doing the things we need to do to educate our child, our children, how to avoid these things. So what is it? Is it a case of they don't, the parents don't know how to be good parents? Is it a case of they wasn't raised good themselves? Or is it some other societal factors that you think? Like a generational curse? See, but I think that I, so that concept bothers me because I think Which you, don't, you can only carry that the concept of um, they're only doing what they what they were taught. Um, I mean, but is, is, is what can what can a 15 year old who just was out here screwing that had a kid? What can they do with teaching a child? They haven't. OK, yeah. So. OK, it's a double edged sword. You're right. You okay. are right in, in that aspect. However, when we're talking about the parents. Yeah. Who use the excuse, well, my mama never taught me this. My daddy never taught me this. Mm-hmm. At some point, you have to take the initiative to learn and do better. Absolutely. My mother taught me nothing about money. But at yeah. some point, I had to learn about money so that I could survive and so that I could learn how to make money. Gotcha. You know what I mean? So I could get to the point where I could, I could afford to, to do things that I want to do in my life and that I could teach my children about money. All right. I think I think though, ahead, the fifteen year old, the teen parent, still has at some point an opportunity to choose to do better. Yeah, I think yeah, it's a choice. It, it's all comes back to it being a choice because if you accept the responsibility of raising a child, if you accept any responsibility, you're going to get exposed for your weaknesses and what you lack in that, right? Mm-hmm, and if mm-hmm. you are choosing to to move forward in accepting that responsibility and you want that to be a better situation in terms of how it turns out, then that means you have a choice to figure out how to do that. And I believe that, and you're not supposed to generalize, but I do believe that most of our kids, regardless of the circumstances they grew up in at their core, know right and wrong at the very basic level mm-hmm. and can use that to now teach their kids how to make better decisions for the future. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I, I think in, if we're talking about a, a scenario where we're talking about a 15-year-old, I do think that it's a little tougher to use that, to apply that notion of, of, of deciding to do better because they're still, you know what I'm saying? They're still children themselves. Absolutely. But, I mean, but that at some point, they have to make that decision. If yes. not now, at some point. So when we're yes. talking about these 20-something-year-olds, these 30-something-year-olds who are still using that same excuse that I wasn't taught any better, no, to me, that, that excuse is not acceptable. Yeah, you need to go sit down somewhere and fix exactly. this problem. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You have to make a decision to do better. So now you kind of touched on this earlier when talking about the balance between being brown and being blue. And although we are not in law enforcement, in any leadership role, you technically are blue, right? There's a us and a them mentality within the workforce because I deal with it. As I moved up in leadership in the different organizations I worked for, it was a, oh, you're a part of them now. And I would come across other employees of color who, and tell me if you had to battle this, who would approach me in a way to say, are you one of them? Or are you still one of us? So I had, I can't say that I've experienced that. And I would hope that it's because throughout each level of my career, I've tried to stay grounded as a person. So my staff, they know me as a person. Um, and, I, and I allow that so that no matter what level I go to, they still know Nosia as a person. Mm-hmm. They respect Lieutenant Marconi, but they know me as a person. So I think that that has helped with that. I did have, I did experience, and it was so disheartening. When I got promoted to Lieutenant, someone came to me. So one of our captains is a black female from Sanford, um, which the sheriff's office is in Sanford. She grew born and raised in Sanford. And someone came to me and said um, that the rumor was, the only reason I got promoted is because I knew this captain from Sanford and I was from Sanford. I'm from Brooklyn. Aside from the sheriff's office, I've never even been to Sanford. So where does this rumor come from? And then I found out it came from a black female also mm. from New York. And it was just hundred percent hate because mm. she hadn't gotten promoted. And it was like, it, it was a matter of like, why, why, why are you taking part in, in us being against each other? Just cheer for me, homie. There's yeah. room for all of us. Yeah. Just be happy for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was very disheartening to see that from another black woman. Um, but as far as the question of am I one of, am I still one of us or one of them? I, I haven't really experienced that. So that was from a managerial standpoint. But what about a blue versus black conversation? Do you ever feel it? Oh you- my gosh! So oddly enough, I get it more from white people than black people. What? Yep. Wait, explain. So I was in. A, I was in a leadership seminar and um, we had to come up with like speech topics and someone presented um, their speech topic was going to be on diversity in their agency and their agency is, is not diverse at all. It's Florida Fish and Wildlife. So it's all them good old boys. And he was doing a presentation on how to increase diversity. And at some point, I don't know, George Zimmerman came up and George Zimmerman was a big deal because his case happened in Sanford. He was at our facility. So, of course, people come to me with questions. And um, it turns into the whole Blue Lives Matter. And the conversation just evolves into that. And um, when, when, I, when I revealed that I don't subscribe to Blue Lives Matter, I got a whole bunch of side eye like, like I was wrong for that. And I had to explain that um, 
me wearing blue, that was a choice. Me wearing this brown skin was not. I was born this way. I'm going to die this way. I'm raising little brown boys and a little brown girl who, who have to navigate this world. If they decide to go blue, that's fine, but that's not their life. Brown mm. is their life. Mm. And, um, and, and I've never had a black person question, especially not a black person in law enforcement, because I think they get it. But white, white law enforcement officers, they don't always get it. Sometimes they get it once it's explained to them, but a lot of them don't. Why? Um, because I don't know if they just believe that they bleed blue or that they just think that brown is less worthy. I, I really couldn't tell you. I, really I, would I would imagine, so within blue, there's, there's a bit of loyalty that is expected within blue because I got family members who are law enforcement and I've heard them kind of talk about this, right? That blue is supposed to come first because there's so many different forces when you're out in the community that can come up against you, that blue got to stick together. And that expectation carries over to you forgetting that you're brown and one of the things that like my uncle who was in law enforcement for many years used to talk about he would say that when if me and you both get stopped and he's talking to a, a a white colleague he said if me and you both get stopped neither one of us are in uniform that blue that blue is not with me and so the color that they see is brown and they treat me accordingly. Whereas with you, and you're not in blue, you're not going to get treated like you're brown. Mm -hmm. And those are two very different forms of treatment. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, yeah. that and so one thing I, I do interviews for new hires. And one question that I always ask is tell me your definition of integrity and tell me your definition of loyalty and which one is more important to you. Right. So my, my definition of integrity is doing the right thing no matter what. I don't care who's looking, you're going to do the right thing, yep. right? Loyalty is being true to something and, 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 and holding, holding strong to that. To me, if you are strong in your integrity, then your loyalty won't be questioned, right? Yeah. It, it's just going to follow suit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when, when we talk about being loyal to the blue, um, if you have professional and personal integrity, then your loyalty is not a problem. But my, my problem um, with loyalty to the blue is people, people don't do, it's not, it's, con, it's, it's not conditional. You know what I mean? It's unconditional for these, for these, for these blue lives. Mm -hmm. So no matter whether you're good, whether you're right or wrong, they're still going to be loyal. No, yeah. I'm loyal when you're right. When your integrity is intact, then I'm going to be loyal. So that's my problem with the loyalty to the blue is that it's not conditional when it needs to be. When it needs mm -hmm. to be. That's good. That's real good. Mm -hmm. um, I got one last question that as I was researching or just Googling women in law enforcement, um, I noticed that I saw a couple articles that talked about how over time, the responsibilities that women in law enforcement take on have changed. Have you noticed for yourself as you've moved up over these 16 years, how has your responsibilities changed from what women did when you first started to what women do now? So I can't see that there is a big change in what we do. And I know what you're referring to. So back in the day, um, uh, females in law enforcement, especially as it pertains to corrections, we were in either a secretarial position 
laundry or kitchen. Mm. We might work a female housing unit. Um, by the time I got there, we were working male housing units, even if not frequently, like the first housing unit I worked was a male housing unit. Um, so that was already changing. Um, I did not see too many black women in supervision. That has definitely grown, but there were some women in supervision. I remember having two white female supervisors um, when I first started. Now I'm starting to see a lot more black females in supervision, um, especially on the sergeant's level. Um, we're trying to get them up in the, in the upper chain of command, but it's, it's kind of difficult. So currently we have, my direct supervisor is a black female captain. She's the highest ranking law enforcement officer in the whole county. That is the sheriff's office and the municipalities included. That's eight agencies. Mm. Behind her, we have two black female lieutenants, myself and one of my partners. Mm. Second highest ranking females in the whole county, eight organizations. So that tells me that we have a long way of go, long way to go in getting black females in these command positions. Um, because I, I wish I knew the number of how many supervisors there are at these levels, and I really don't. Um, but the fact that there's only three of us in eight organizations tells me that there's a huge disparity in the breakdown um, of the population of, of supervisors, lieutenants, level and above. Hello, this is Travaris McCurdy, candidate for Florida State Representative District 46 here in Orlando. The election is August 18th, and I'm asking for your support. Please visit www.travarismccurdy.com. And remember, vote early or vote by mail. Whatever you do, vote for Travaris McCurdy, August 18th. All right. So we at the end of the show where we like to give you some food for thought. We like to share one of our favorite quotes, and man, this one is powerful. And Nelsie, I can't wait wait for you to get a hold of this one. So here's the quote. The quote it says, "You're only confined by the walls you build yourself. You're only confined by the walls you build yourself." And as I think about your career and what you've accomplished, I can't wait for you to give us your thoughts on that quote. And who was this quote by? I don't know. I don't ever share who the quote is by. I just share the quote because I think that that's important. I um, I think that is 100% true. I believe that we are only limited by the limits that we set upon ourselves. Can't nobody tell me that I can't do something. No one can put those limitations on me. So if for me to mentally feel, and, and to me, it, it, it's about your mentality. For me to feel like I cannot do something it's for me to have a defeatist mentality it's because i've accepted that for myself um, and I think that as long as i'm willing to to continue to break down walls and break down barriers and defy rules that others have put in place for me yeah. oh i'm a, oh yeah you know what i mean so um i think that it, it, it's extremely true absolutely listen Folks, you heard it. You heard it from Nelsia yourself. Listen, this is why she's always been such a dear friend and a sister to us, uh, because she has always believed in being positive, serving others and pushing past what others say that you can't. So if you're out there and you're trying to figure out what it is you want to do in life, keep those principles in mind. You're only confined by the walls that you build. Tear down those walls and progress. Live life on purpose. 
Thanks for rocking with us as always. I am your host, Coach Vic, joined as always by my dear friend, Dr. Shane, and our other dear friend and sister, Miss Nelsia Marconi. We thank you. We love you. If you haven't already, subscribe, share, like the show. And we out. Bye. Thank you. I'm winning for